Hi folks, Al here. Now, in the first part of part two, you're gonna hear Hans talk about the case against him. And I figured it's such a complicated, complex thing, and he can't even begin to really present it here. So I, I think it's probably clever that I give a little context and a few more details so that when you hear him talk about it, you'll get a better survey of it. And in the last half of this part two, we go back to discussing general matters. But as far as uh, you already know that he's writing subversive articles that is not very popular in the mainstream. And as he will tell you, he also started to whistleblow on the huge drug laundering going on in Swiss banks, which tells me actually, and we didn't touch that in this show, but it tells me CIA may be involved. So Hansula thinks it's the powerful bankers. He may be right. I think it's the deep state that's in cahoots with these bankers, or they may be the same people. I mean, we know CIA is going into banking long ago. So, But whatever the case, they have power and he was pretty unlucky because the banker he used in Switzerland, and you, you may say he brought it up on himself to have an account in Switzerland, but there's nothing illegal with that. But what he didn't know was, in fact, his own money was used to launder a huge case in Norway that everybody in Norway knows about. It's about the policeman who was accused of uh, corruption and, and taking part in earning money on... on uh, Drugs, which are illegal here, actually cannabis, but they don't distinguish between that and dangerous substances, <laughs> like the legal one called alcohol. So that part of the story is is super fishy and pretty complicated, and I don't think you got more enlightened from me from what I say about this now. But uh, as for his case itself, suffice to, to say that because that was classified, it, it contributed to him being prevented from proving his innocence. And in addition, it didn't help that he whistle blew on all the powerful, wealthy Norwegian people who had their own accounts involved there. So no doubt he's a thorn in the eye for the authorities. And before he was uh, taken, he was even threatened about his role in the Norwegian company Thule Drilling. He didn't heed it. And one month later, early morning in 2011, police raided his home and brutally dragged him out of his house in front of family and neighbors. Yeah, right. As you do with a mass murderer. Oh, I mean, someone who is suspected of economic and tax issues. After interrogation, they threw him in jail where he was held longer than allowed by the torture clause of the European Convention of Human Rights, despite judge and prosecutor promising it wouldn't happen. After 14 days of full isolation, Supreme Court has to interfere and freed him while declaring that jailing in isolation was illegal. The excuse to go after him was through a commission he took for the oil company to the drilling between 07 and 08 to save it from international professional gangsters who tried to plunder it in Dubai. Thanks to Olav and Tula's board and management with enormous time and resources, they succeeded in rescuing the company from ruin. But despite having solved the crisis, some American bondholders then cynically exploited Tula's material breach situation by trying to seize all the company's values, helped by corrupt lawyers 
and Nordic trustee forcing them to declare bankruptcy in order to loot their carcass. The housing manager directed a false report at two livid allegations of corruption. When this didn't succeed, they shifted blame for the bankruptcy onto the previous management and board. The entire case is thoroughly rotten in so many areas that it looks like a bad movie. For example, the legally incompetent housing manager willingly and for financial gain running affairs on behalf of the perps in an economically and politically motivated game where even a former MP of the Conservative Party and former finance minister of the Socialist Party decided that anonymous plaintiffs had the right to special treatment at the expense of the interests of the defendant and the shareholders in violation of established legal principles. And that central evidence in the case was withheld and a police complaint with serious shortcomings, cheating with facts and failure to present contrary evidence, thus being an intentionally false complaint. And the absurdness goes on and on and on. We find conflict of interest throughout the case where there is network connections between various people in the bankruptcy council, involved law firms, the investigator, public prosecutor, an eco-crime division of the police and even his own lawyer. Now, it would be nice to scream, oh, it's the Illuminati, oh, it's the Jews, oh, it's the Freemasons. Oh, it's uh, the Jesuits, it's this, it's that. But in real life, there are rotten people everywhere. And the higher up you go, the more you'll find the more psychopaths and corrupt people there are. And in politics, naive people think that, oh, no, no, we live in a free society and a meritocracy and you're free to do business. You know, the American dream that you can build you up from the bottom. No, the higher up you go, the more dangerous and the more rotten and the more toxic and the more risk there is. And Hans Olaf has experienced this. He, uh, it ended up with him in 2015 being sentenced to four years for severe economic infidelity against a company where he himself was chairman of the board, <laughs> plus reparations for $5 million, and seeing as the company was insolvent, going straight to the plunderers of the estate, who were co-conspirators. An assault on the wound, also in addition, having to pay legal cost of $13,000. Now, finally, I want to say also we had Truls Lee on, that's how his name is pronounced, not Trolls Lie, but Trolls Lee. And he's been smeared and they try to go after him for this too. And that tells you that whether it's connected or not, at least they're seizing upon an opportunity. And so there was much smear in the press. Oh, New Times uh, having criminals working for them. But Trolls was standing his ground. Here are some quotes of him. When the rest of the mainstream tries to crush them, based on this, he says, We have an anarchistic line and we don't believe the state in everything they do. We are also very skeptical to some of the stuff going on in Norwegian court system. And another quote of him in another paper, New time is based on freelancers like Olav. We cannot write to the readers everything about their entire background. 
it's not my task and it's more important to evaluate the text than the writer or maybe i should translate that to the message than the messenger another quote of lee here's a guy who has 30 years experience from the finance world and has turned against them do you expect me to start explaining all this to the readers he's not employed here so it's just the texts i get and i consider if they are eligible for being published i do not immerse myself into people's personal life and uh, another quote i think there's aspects with this verdict which is suspicious as far as evidence concerns and that the Norwegian court system doesn't completely follow the rules of the game. So this should be interesting for the Norwegian public also. Talk about having someone's back. Anyway, that's just some extra information, more context, and now back to the program. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two of our discussion today with Hans-Erik Olav on the global scam that is our economy. Now, we've teased them with your own story. Uh, I think it's time to take on that. Uh, I have uh, listened to it as you've accounted for it on YouTube. It's pretty complex. Oh, by the way, uh, I said to you before we started that I saw your interview with, um, uh, what's his name again, Michael Steele. Robert David Steele. Robert yeah. David Steele, yeah. The, the, and you were very early out. Uh, this was one of the first interviews I think he gave to the public. Uh, after that, he's given a million. So he's become like a household name in the, uh, I guess I should call it the subversive information industry. But yeah. how did you uh, know about him? And how did you hook up with him when he was in Norway? Uh, I, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I learned about him being named for the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, it kind of in- intrigued me that uh, someone I'd never heard about uh, was uh, named for that. Or So uh, I heard that he was coming to Norway. So I, I simply called him at the hotel and I said, uh, can, we have a, can we have a talk? Hmm. And it turned into after my first talk with him downtown, I decided that he his perception and his viewpoints on how the world worked and uh, what we needed to address in order to, uh, you know, um, solve some of the problems that we've been discussing in part one, mm. uh, we were pretty much in line. Uh, so I, I talked to Truls Lee, uh, the editor of uh, New Times, and I asked him if I could borrow his uh, video equipment in order to conduct an interview with Robert David Steele. Mm. So that's, uh, that's how we became friends and uh, the reason for the interview yeah Mm, okay nice but there's your story and you have been we've talked about oil and corporations and you know you're norwegian so no no wonder you've been involved in oil Um, because this story 
I'm not just saying we should talk about it like a therapy session, venting <laughs> session for you. I think it kind of illustrates the rot and corruption in the system and how it not just applies to business and finance, but also into law even That's and right. the state. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you can choose your own starting point. Well, what I was convicted of uh, by the Norwegian state was... Uh, a rescue operation down in the, the United Arab Emirates. I was the chairman of a big rig company, and not a big rig company, but a rig company. And uh, that rescue operation led to, was in fact successful. And even uh, the courts in Norway finally had to admit that uh, I'd been a, a contributor to rescuing $600 million for the shareholders and the creditors of that company, which is called Tule Drilling. Mm. The, whole, the whole story is uh, on the net. I've posted everything on there with the evidence and everything. But, but the gist, you can give us the gist. Yeah. Well, the gist was that uh, we had fixed uh, price contracts for three building rigs uh, for, with a value of $600 million in the Emirates. And... Uh, the people running the yard where they were supposed to be built, uh, British uh, British people, they started re- requesting more money in order to fulfill their obligations under the contract. And when we said that these are this is a fixed price contracts, they simply at some point just uh, dropped two cement blocks in front of the yard and said, we're, we're closing down until you pay us. And they could do that because they had monopoly, right? Well, they were in the so-called free zone in, in Sharjah, and they'd been in that area for, you know, 20, 30 years. They knew the whole system. They had their sponsors, you know. Um, you usually have to have, a, uh, you know, an Arab citizen or somebody to sponsor you. So they had all the inroads, and Tula didn't even have a presence. They didn't even have a company mm-hmm. down in Sharjah. So we were were basically helpless in that uh, that fight. They could do whatever. You were not involved in buying those rigs, right? You came in as a rescue. I came in. Uh, I came into the company because uh, one of the biggest shareholders uh, at that time wanted me to come in and uh, help out with the the management of getting the process of building the rigs more in line uh, right. and uh, more efficient. So that's the reason I came in. Now, as it turned out, uh, not long after I, I, I came into the company, it uh, it escalated out of control because uh, these people down there turned out to be corrupt. They turned out to, uh, you know, blackmail us for more money. Mm. And we ended up in a situation where these rigs were costing us approximately $100,000 per day just lying there with us not being able to work on them. So we had to resolve that situation. Mm. And that's that's what I that's what I was instrumental in accomplishing. And yeah, because you did accomplish it, you, you got the air of uh, some powerful uh, Arabian oligarch or something, if I recall right. And they started to look into this and, and the wheels were starting to roll, right? Yes, I had a, I've had a business and friendly relationship with an American citizen, Mr. Lacars, for quite a number of years, and uh, he he knew some people uh, in you know in that in that in those circles down in uh, Saudi Arabia. And since one of our rigs, the Tula Power, was going was uh, 
was uh, going to go on a charter uh, to Saudi Aramco, the world's largest uh, oil company. Uh, what we needed was to go to them and uh, have them try to help us out. So that's essentially what happened. And uh, this is uh, documented to the courts, of course, but uh, um, they sort of chose to ignore that evidence. Yeah, but you're going too fast. Why did this at all turn into a problem? Why were you charged of anything uh, to begin with? What happened in between there? Well, the thing is, is that uh, we decided that... uh, uh, well, when they helped us, uh, when they set things straight in Sharjah, so to speak, and they helped us resolve the situation so we were able to get in and work on the rigs, mm-hmm. they, uh, it was clear that we needed to pay them some money or a fee for having helped us out. Yeah. Now, first I was told that uh, they thought it was fair that they would get half of the company. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I said, you know, I, I said, I can't go back to my shareholders or the board, the rest of the board, and tell them that uh, they you want half, half of the company. But I think the best thing for you to do is for you to discuss this with the, the biggest shareholder at that time. Mm. Uh, and that I've not be involved in that discussion. Uh, and what it ended up being was that they agreed on a sum of... Uh, six million dollars which constituted one percent of the rig value or the rig value so so they were going to get this money as a thank you for their help to resolve the locked situation where you were losing money yeah and being blackmailed the way i looked at it was pretty much like i look at any kind of a consultancy or brokerage role uh, you know between two parties and uh, for for them to have sold that situation was of course worth a lot of money yeah, for the shareholders yeah. and uh, in fact so much that they knew they could ask for half the company. Because <laughs> well, need- if, if you look at the, if if you look at it purely from their point of view, they're right. Yeah. And uh, the fact is that these people have a lot more influence than. Uh, than you know, um, people in those power positions have in in Western society. So, yeah, yeah. and they can ask for that, and they can get it if they are persistent. <laughs> mm. But uh, I couldn't go back to the shareholders and the creditors and tell them that. No. Uh, at least I couldn't uh, say that uh, to them that I think we should do this because it was, uh, you know, it was just too much money to give away. Mm. So. But we ended up with 1%, $6 million, uh, and uh, that transaction was uh, done. And uh, in hindsight, uh, four years afterwards, actually, uh, I was uh, charged with having uh, paid out that money uh, to the detriment of the company. Hmm. So, so, So it wasn't that it was corruption, it was that... The money you paid to save the company is now spinned as a detriment to the company. Otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, in other words, as if you were tricking the company for your own gains or something, right? That kind of corruption is is what they're going with. No, they well, 
I'm just trying to understand the the charge, yeah. the philosophy of the charge. You're saying it's the, true, it's trumped up. The charge, the the, the charge is that uh, mismanagement of the company's money to pay a fee that shouldn't have been paid. Hmm. Uh, um, you know, simply put. And that was the that was. The and was this the 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 shareholders who who? Well, the thing is, is that uh, you can. You could say that they, the, the company, after having been locked down by this blackmail for quite a few months from the summer of 2007 or two, yeah, 2007, I believe, until uh, way a little bit into 2008, that cost the company so much money that it was impossible to get further funding, yeah. and the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. Mm. And the way that the courts viewed it, uh, uh, that six million dollars to be paid to the people that helped resolve that situation uh, actually uh, was uh, was money that should have been spent on trying on on other stuff uh, because the company was in financial difficulty. Wow. But but the whole point of the rescue mission and paying the six million dollar was that we needed to do that first, and then we needed to get money yeah. from somewhere, either equity or or uh, further loans or a combination of both in order to run the company. But nobody, no investor, uh, no no sane investor would give us any money before we had resolved that situation. Of course, of course. So that was the, that was the charge, yeah. Mm. I see what you mean. Yeah, because Norway is pretty hard on businesses. So um, you have to have your tongue straight in your mouth when you're dealing with the state and the laws there. Um, we're not very business friendly, um, at least not if you belong to a business that's not protected by the powerful interests. Mm. I I'm sure the multinational corporations have a field day here. But um, OK, so I, I can see that. But somehow your case was involved. Tied to deeper stuff going on in Europe, could you explain that? For example, they refused to let you put evidence for your defense yeah. because it would blow open some more fishy cases in other courts in in Europe. What was all that about? Uh, as it, uh, by the way, everything uh, concerning what you just uh, talked about now is out there and has been sent to the courts. Yeah. But what it involves is uh, uh, I filed a whistleblower complaint back in 2016, which I also sent to the prime minister. I sent it to the tax authorities and I sent it to the criminal police and I sent it to the, you know, to the uh, to the courts. And uh, briefly put, uh, what uh, what has happened is that uh, my case is. Uh, tied in to the biggest drug case in Norway uh, ever, the Erik Jensen and the Edmund Copeland case. Let me just very uh, quickly give a surmise of that, and that's that okay. there is, because in Norway, cannabis is criminalized, and so, so the way people get it is through illegal import, smuggling, basically. And there was this big case where they took a lot of cannabis, and it involved a policeman, Eric Jansen mm. and other, um, should we say, th these aren't like low-level criminals, but like more uh, well-to-do people. And so, yeah, so it's like, I mean, it's not the really back people, the the really source people, 
<laughs> they can't touch. No. But it's a little up in the chain, so to speak. And so it's a good symbol case to, you know, uh, maintain the criminalization of mm-hmm. cannabis. So, yeah, that's that case. Every Norwegian knows it. Go on. Well, as it turns out, uh, Erik Jensen, who is the policeman in the story, has uh, gotten the final verdict. I think it's only now up to the Supreme Court that uh, to 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 say to have their say. But he's uh, he's uh, supposed to go to prison uh, with a twenty-one year sentence. Jesus. Now, now the fact is, is that the whole Erik Jensen and Jermin Kaprun case is a cover-up case. Uh, because uh, it it it, uh, it it has to do with how the drug trade in Norway is being financed, and it's being financed partly through uh, the Swiss banking system. Mm. And uh, what we've what I found out through my own case is that uh, um, you know, yeah, I mean, Kaprun, he has uh, contact with Swiss bankers. This is this is known from from the case file. And uh, uh, his drug money is being laundered through Swiss banks. Mm. And, and I have the proof of this because 1.5 million of my money was used to launder this. Mm. And this is where it becomes, uh, this is where, where it becomes tricky uh, politically because uh, and there, is a, there is a huge client list of wealthy Norwegian clients that I have named uh, in my video, and I've also named them to the courts, uh, even as high as the Prime Minister of Norway back in 2016, where these uh, high net worth individuals in Norway, there's about 10, 12, 15 of them, Mm -hmm. uh, their accounts uh, in all probability have been used to launder this drug money. Do you think they are aware of it or...? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're aware of it. And mm. if they weren't aware of it, I have given them the proof. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And, uh, but... Hang on, uh, how, how did your money get involved in this then? Well, I had a bank account in uh, in uh, in Switzerland at, at one point. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but how, how did that get tied up to drug smuggling money, whitewashing? Well, because uh, that's part of that money that I had, not a big amount, but a sufficient amount... Uh, I was contacted by a representative of one of the Swiss banks and asked me if I wanted to wanted to get uh, some of my money to Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I said, yeah. So uh, we went ahead and did that. And uh, although you might question uh, uh, tax issues involved with that, uh, the most important thing about that transaction, which, by the way, is not illegal uh, as long as you report it, mm-hmm. Uh, is that uh, uh, I found out uh, who 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 was at the other end of uh, of the of this transaction, and it turned out to be this Yadmin Kaplan. Mm. So you didn't know him personally, but the banker. No, no, I I had no idea who the man was until I got the final indictment from the criminal police in Norway. I remember right, right. Just to clear this up, the banker connected uh, was connected to Copeland yeah. and also to you. Yeah, that's right. So he was the middleman, and yeah. he uh, he didn't tell me uh, anything about uh, you know. No, of course. Who, who it was until I, mean, I had no knowledge of Copeland, mm. you know, until uh, his name popped up and I at home and I asked my wife. Uh, w- there's a name here, uh, Mr. Copeland. Can you go in on the internet and see who that is? Mm. 
And a minute later, she shot it down to be, my God, this guy's a career criminal. <laughs> and just to make clarify this too, you've not been charged for this transaction. That's not a part of your alleged criminality, right? It's part of the of the case uh, per se, but it's not uh, what I've been. You know, it's not the charge that I've been committed or convicted for. No. So. But this uh, constitutes a huge problem for you because if you want evidence connected to this banker, then it will open evidence for the cover-up of the cannabis case, right? Because he's connected to... So that's why they wouldn't allow any evidence from you involving that because it was indirectly... No, I mean, uh, it it goes much further than that because... From the very start, uh, they have kept it a secret that they have also had a case uh, against me in in Switzerland, which they kept secrets for the whole time. Mm. And I and um, even my lawyer, Jon Christian Elben, uh, has uh, repeatedly uh, neglected to follow and pursue evidence that is uh, in Switzerland uh, concerning my case. Mm. And He's, he's, he's done this, uh, of course, because he has a conflict of interest, a giant conflict, because on the one hand, he's trying, uh, he's uh, representing this Jensen uh, and uh, uh, trying, uh, well, I'm not sure that he was really trying to, 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 to do a proper defense of Jensen. I have my doubts about it. But in any case, if he had followed and pursued uh, what I wanted him to pursue in Switzerland to get the evidence out, out from Switzerland and the banks, then he would have uncovered what was actually going on, which was a giant money laundering scheme for for drug money. Mm. And of course, that, that constituted a great uh, conflict of interest from him, which meant that he kept uh, evidence that would have exonerated me from ever getting into the courts. Mm. So my own defense lawyer... To protect another case yes. he was defending. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm unsure as to the complete uh, reasoning behind Mr. Elden's uh, actions, but uh, uh, I think they are pretty sinister in whatever way you look at it. Okay, so you're not pleased with your defense. That would be putting it mildly. Well, I guess not when you got convicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But uh, he wasn't the only one who kept this under wraps. Uh, didn't the Ecocrim, Economic Criminal Police, also? Yeah, they, they kept it under wraps. They kept it, they kept it secret from me. I mean, according to Norwegian law, you cannot, uh, in, you cannot initiate criminal investigations in two different countries at the same time. And they kept, it, uh, they kept that a secret. And they only, I, was only, I only found out about it after they closed the case in Switzerland and it was impossible to get the case file. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, at one point, uh, the, uh, when I was trying to get, uh, get my case into the appellate court, uh, the appellate court argued back to me that uh, there is no way that you, can, that you can be exonerated because we have evidence, uh, the evidence from Switzerland is so strong that you will, you will, you will be convicted. So I, I went down to the court and I asked the clerk to get me the uh, the file from Switzerland with the evidence that they were referring to. Mm-hmm. Well, the file didn't exist. Wow. It wasn't there. So, in fact, the court said that we are convicting you on basis of evidence that we have we have not seen. 
and which we don't want to see, but you are convicted on that. So when it doesn't exist, it's been it's been removed, it's been deleted. Well, uh, or it was never the, there. The <laughs> that that of course is something uh, we want find out for certain because uh, my defense lawyer and the criminal police kept all of this hidden from my case for four years until they closed closed the case file in Switzerland. Mm. At that time. Uh, Mr. Elden did a few uh, sort of half, half-assed attempts to get this evidence, but of course it was too late. Mm. So he participated in this cover-up. Hmm. Yeah. And the judge, when you tried to get these things into the case, he, he dismissed it, right? You, you weren't allowed to put evidence into your case? No, I was not allowed to get a hold of that evidence. I was not allowed to, to have any of the eight witnesses uh, uh, that I uh, that I wanted who could have exonerated me uh, among other among other things lawyers and people working down in the United Arab Emirates that could have told them that what I was saying was completely correct hmm. uh, I was not allowed one single witness hmm. I was denied that so in other words this is a rigged case they want to nail you for some reason do you have any notion of why they want to make an example of you why they want to take you down well uh First of all, they didn't want any noise that could uh, uh, that could uh, uh, lead to the public finding out about this uh, uh, laundering of drug money. That's one thing. Mm. And of course, uh, you have these Norwegian anonymous accounts in Swiss banks, which is a touchy subject, especially for the tax authorities. The tax authorities, by the way, have been alerted by me to these anonymous accounts both their names and what the money's been used for, mm -hmm. that they have, just like the, all the way up to the prime minister, they have uh, not uh, responded at all. It's just not silence. So that is one reason. Mm. The other reason is, of course, that I had a, I had a vested interest, you might say, in, in, in the Tula, Tula liquidation estate, where I saw that the liquidator for the estate and the criminal police basically walking hand in hand trying to get as much money out of that estate as possible. But why would they want to crush Tula? Is that because it's a private oil company competing with the state oil or is there something deeper? I don't know the real reason behind that. Okay. okay. I just think that uh, if you have a company that is going into bankruptcy uh, and it's in the magnitude of Tula with all, with all those values, Mm. There are financial interests at stake, and uh, the liquidator for the estate, of course, has a lot to gain by playing along with the people who has uh, the money to fund the liquidating estates and uh, try to bring forth uh, any kind of values that are still left in there. Mm. So, but wasn't wasn't the shareholders thankful for your work? Or? No, no, they were very thankful. Okay, yeah, so you had your their backing, but they weren't allowed to witness for you. They were not allowed to witness. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was an incident because I was critical of the liquidating estate. Mm. There was an incident. I don't know if you read about it on the website that I posted, but uh, uh, at the time when I was being very critical of the uh, liquidator for the state because he was simply, uh, you know, he was working to the tune of the largest uh, shareholders and not the whole uh, creditor uh, situation. I was approached by two people uh, up in Holmenkollen, you know, where there's a natural retreat. You can walk in the woods there. That's mm. uh, by the famous Holmenkollen ski jump. Mm. I was confronted by two persons who actually uh, who actually tried to scare me. 
mm. telling me that I should refrain from criticizing the liquidating estate. And they were just giving me some good advice. Mm-hmm. So this goes pretty deep and uh, it's pretty powerful people, I think. That yeah, the- intimidation in Norway is, there's a higher threshold to do that than in America. So that tells you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you say they were, the liquidators were on board with the biggest shareholder. Weren't you friendly with the biggest shareholder? No, the liquidator was not on board with the biggest shareholder. They were on board with the biggest creditors. Creditors, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, the bondholders. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and wasn't one of the creditors those who had done this in the first place against Tule drilling? Done what, you mean? Uh, screwed it up with the uh, things going down in um, United Arab Emirates, like this English company or something. I, I thought I read... No. No, you know, the creditors, uh, which were uh, in large part, they were, uh, you know, American hedge funds. Oh, uh, then you're screwed. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that they, of course, have a le- legitimate interest to try to protect their investment. Yeah, but they're not interested in making viable businesses. They're interested in looting money. Well, some people say that. But if we take the the kind approach, well, they lend money and they have a they they do have a legitimate interest uh, by doing that in order to try to protect their investment or or their loan so mm. so and it, it it's important that uh, you don't uh, miss out on that fact you have to make sure that you treat shareholder values and the creditor values uh, sort of uh, uh, the um, the same way. I mean, you have to take care of both. But why were the creditors hostile to you? Wouldn't they realize that you actually salvaged this so there's something to demand from it? I mean, if it wasn't for you, it would have gone bankrupt overnight. Well, I'm not so sure that the the creditors uh, had anything to do with what happened in this other case with Eric Jensen and Edmund Koppelman and things like that. Oh, okay. I'm, not even, I'm not even sure if they if they were involved in what the liquidator was, uh, uh, you know, doing behind the scenes in order to protect their interest. Uh, and their interest, of course, lies in pleasing the largest creditors who have the money to fund the estate. Mm. So. But I've read something about either on the liquidator side or on the creditor side, there was some rotten business where there was a conflict of interest, but I forgot the details. Mm. Someone who had an interest in crushing Tula. Yeah. Does it ring any bells? Well, there, there might have. Or profited from it, at least. There might have been. I, I, I'm not sure. It's from your own case. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, extrapolating this from something you said in your own case, but I forgot the detail. I should have noted it down. My bad. Well, if you if you like to find it and tell me, I yeah, we will not spend. It's not that important. The the thing is just to show people the injustice and the corruption of it all. Yeah, because I mean, you wouldn't say you got a fair your fair day in court, right? This was rigged. I didn't really get a day in court at all because I was denied. Uh, all my, all the witnesses that I could have proven my innocence. I was uh, mm. uh, the, I was denied the evidence that would have exonerated me, mm. and my own lawyer kept evidence away from the trial that would have exonerated me. Evidence was manipulated and falsified uh, by the criminal police uh, in order to get me convicted, mm. and this was all because of the uh, this huge cover up, which involved uh, Swiss banks and money laundering of drug money. Mm. For this Jeremy couple, 
which also involved an anonymous accounts held by wealthy Norwegians in the Swiss banking system. Right. And uh, I mean, their names are there for everyone to see. And the tax authorities have done nothing about that. You would have thought that uh, any kind of evasion of taxes would uh, ring a bell with them. You would have thought that the prime minister would have been interested in that kind of, um, uh, you know, procedures going on. And you would have thought that the criminal economic police would have been delighted yeah. in order to pursue wealthy Norwegians with uh, anonymous bank accounts in Switzerland, especially when they're used for laundering drug money. But none of that uh, had any interest for them. So okay, well, there's only the question, one conclusion. The question then becomes why? Yeah. Why? Why no interest? And the only logical explanation is that uh, they don't want to pursue it and uh, they don't want to take a fight perhaps with the Swiss bankers. Uh, I think the conclusion is different. I think the conclusion is, well, it may be partly that, but the most obvious thing is that these wealthy Norwegians are more powerful than we imagine. If the system is protecting them, look, this happened to you after you whistle blew them yeah you really don't think that was an element in why they would needed to take you down because you you reveal them like this it could yeah of course it could be there is also another element in this and that is the that is the police procedures in order to fight the, the illegal importing of drugs to norway because uh, the former or the, the former uh, Riksadvokat, you know. Um, yeah, Attorney General. The Attorney General, Mr. Bush, uh, Turaxel Bush, when he came into the Attorney General's office in, I think it was 1997 or 96, they started a very aggressive policy or police procedure in order to capture people who were dealing in drugs. Mm. And what this really means is that uh, they initiated a policy where you could uh, you could lure these uh, elements into situations where they could be caught. Mm. So, in other words, you'd uh, you'd trick them, you, you'd entrap them, which is illegal according to the law. Mm. But this is what they this is what they did, and Eirik Jensen was uh, the police officer who was leading all of that. So, I met uh, many of these uh, people in prison. Mm. who were wrongly convicted according to this entrapment method and had spent 15, 16 years in jail. Mm. And, of course, this is another reason why they wanted to keep this under wrap. They, they don't want that to come out. Mm. Yeah, but uh, it's been revealed many times. Like in Bergen, there was a police case where they... I, I guess they need the numbers to legitimate the budget, uh, and that's why they're interested in criminalizing cannabis. But there was uh, kids... Mm. who were tricked into, you know, they provided everything. They provided the drugs they were supposed to sell. They organized the, the, the selling of it, everything, and then they took them down. And this was a huge scandal, but I don't think it had any consequences. And that's the problem, not just in little Norway. It's a problem all over the board that in today's world, you are failing upwards. Yeah. If you are powerful enough, there will not be consequences. And that's why everything is uh, like it is. It's havoc because there, there's who who should defend our interests? Who 
who are left. The politicians, they're on their pay. Uh, at least in America, they are legalized, bribed. Uh, so there's no institute, and the institutions that were there from the old days mm-hmm. to protect us, they are erodated. They have uh, people running them that are against those institutions. So I don't see any uh, solution there. We're going to discuss solutions very soon, by the way. Uh, and then we will come into this uh, regulation versus freedom. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's uh, what you're what you're saying now reminds me of uh, what uh, Nico Machiavelli once said that yeah. politics and morality have nothing in common. Yeah. Of course, we're way, we're way beyond that point. <laughs> yeah. That was already in the medieval ages. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like 1984, Brave Union World, and Machiavelli's writings are the blueprint of what's going on. Yes, it's not warnings; it's like a manual. But uh, to finish the your case, is there anything else you want to mention about it while we're at that topic? No, no I, I think uh, I pretty much summed it up. Uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, it just shows you really how corrupt the system is and how deep down the rabbit hole you have to go to to find uh, how far up it goes up the ladder. But how, how do they get judges, for example, who are compromised? Who is selecting which judges uh, rule in each case? Because you could have gotten a judge who mm. was not compromised, but they made sure you got the judge you needed, uh, they needed. So uh, so how, how are they controlling that? Do you know how that part of the system works? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because in Norway you have a two-tiered uh, uh, system. Uh, in fact, uh, there, are two, there are two different uh, legal systems in Norway. Uh, I've written an article about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, the way it works that uh, you have judges, you have two classes of judges. You have the normal judges who are, you know, appointed to the court and, uh, and you know, they trial all kinds of cases, hmm. except cases where you have to be security cleared. Hmm. Okay, Security cleared means that you have to uh, be cleared by uh, the U.S. Uh, military. Hmm. What is the essence of this, to make a long story short, is that you have a system which is public and known Mm. with judges. And then you have another system where the allegiance of the judges, because they have been security cleared, is not to the public, but to the masters that have cleared them. Mm. So you have a sort of like a military junta uh, running uh, a secret court. And of course, this is done very shrewdly through the what's called the security law. And it's very difficult for the ordinary citizens to go in and see this and understand that this is what's going on. But this is exactly what's going on. So you have a yeah. you have a two-tiered system. Uh, the snake has two heads, to put it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I, I don't mind so much that head, which is in public. Uh, there are some sincere people working there but you're very right about the so-called security state which is mm. you know the western corporation of intel military uh, the nato uh, gang of uh, criminals well i think it would be very wrong to say that the entire norwegian legal system and courts is corrupt that would be wrong yeah i think uh, you know if i have to put a percentage on i'd say that 95 to 97 percent of it is completely okay and legitimized and working fine Mm. Uh, when a plumber goes into court for having done a bad work it works Mm. 
and the system works. But it's uh, it's uh, in cases where there is some kind of special interest yeah. and where uh, where this two-tiered system come into play uh, and where uh, people behind the scenes uh, decide what's going to be the outcome behind the locked doors somewhere in dark rooms. That's that's where it gets out of hand. Exactly. And, and, and that's all they need. This is the answer to how they can remain unaccountable because they have this implemented in every Western country who are cooperating on the so-called war on terror, which is really the war against the citizen. Yeah. And we see exactly the same happened in where one of those three percentage compromised selection system was implemented in England against Julian Assange. Mm. The judge in his kangaroo court case is completely corrupt. In fact, her husband has direct interests against <laughs> WikiLeaks and Assange. Mm-hmm. It's not, they don't even try to hide it. So yeah, that's how they get their, so they only need like three to five percent corrupted judges that do their bidding and then they can just invoke those in every case where their interests are threatened, either in small cases like yours or in big symbolic cases like Assange. Well, you know, a symbolic case with uh, Assange is it's uh, I agree symbolic, but it's it's really it's really very very bad. Mm. And the fact that we hear nothing about it on in the Norwegian media is terrible. Mm. Uh, here is uh, this is crime against Julian Assange and the, and the freedom of the press. And the same with uh, with Snowden. Yeah. Uh, you know uh, that this can go on and on. And uh, Julian Assange being uh, treated the way he's being treated is uh, is extremely upsetting for anybody that's concerned with the freedom of the press and freedom of speech, and uh, and a just hearing in a court of law. You know, it's just really, people. Really, I, I think people don't understand the consequences. They will in the future when the consequences manifest, but then it's too late. It's it's a crime against humanity. That's basically what it is, because uh, Assange, it's not even about him. He's just a symbol of the people, yeah. of the uh, our right to know, uh, and Snowden too, our right to know the war crimes, our right to know the financial crimes, our right to know the illegal surveillance, our, our right to know all the criminality going on in the top of the, in this mafia system that they want to be unaccountable for and in order to maintain unaccountability mm. yes you have to rig the system and the courts but you also need to take down those who dare make us aware because as long as we are made aware they're, they're never going to feel safe there's always a threat that we may rise up and change the system yeah. so to speak especially the nation state which is why they need to control the nation state. They need a world where the corporations run everything with FISA courts, with secret CAA prisons, etc. And yeah, that's what, that's what Assange case is uh, involved in. And, and ironically, your case got kind of involved in this too, in a small scale in Norway for the, yeah. Okay. So, so that's that. Now, okay, let's move on then. Uh, You wrote an excellent article right after uh, you came out, I guess, uh, or, or maybe you wrote it when you were inside, but it was published uh, 16th of September. Yeah. It was a review of the book Sabotage, The Business of Finance. I want you to first share with us a little of what he's revealing and pointing to there, 
And then I want to hear, and because you agree with this analysis, but you kind of disagree with these conclusions of how to solve it. So could we start with the description of the subject? Well, I don't have the article in front of me, and I don't have the book here. But uh, if I remember correctly, uh, what uh, I'm writing about in the article is uh, a critique of uh, of uh, their assertion that uh, the banksters are really using that they make so much money out of a corrupt banking system uh, that uh, that and that they're in, in fact engrossed in in the corruption of the system itself. And what the book does is expose how they manipulate and uh, bend the rules in order to make huge profits. Mm. That's the essence of the book, uh, in my opinion. Mm. And uh, he, he, they do talk about also the, the fact that uh, this is basically a pyramid scheme. So they're, they're, they're on to the right, uh, the right kind of description of the problem. It's when it comes to the solution that I think they fail. Mm. And uh, So what do they suggest as solutions? Well, they think that more regulation of the banking sector is what's needed. And uh, if, you, if you keep on having a fiat monetary system, then of course you need regulations, but the banks will always be able to dodge them. The point is, is that, in my opinion, you can have a self-regulatory system uh, where you don't, if you scratch the fiat banking system, you say you can no longer do that. You can no, you can no longer print money into existence out of nothing. If you get rid of that system and you institute a self-regulating system where the banks fund each other internally within the banking system, then you have a self-regulatory system automatically where if one bank uh, gets too... Uh, what should I say, too eager to make profits and less concerned with risk and keeps uh, uh, getting money from the internal banking system in order to fund its own operations, pretty soon the other banks will look at that bank and say, hey, uh, you're spending uh, our money internally and the money from the internal banking, you're spending it unwisely, you're taking too much risk. Now you pay us back some of the money that we've given you through the internal banking system before you can lend out anymore. Hmm. This is a way to self-regulate the banking system because they regulate themselves. Hmm. So this is... This so you're, you think that with unregulating the banks, uh, I, I think you should say a couple of more words about that because I think some people will criticize you for that view. So I think you need to... Explain it a little better, if you don't mind indulging us. Okay. So why do you, because some will say, if you don't put down laws for banks, they will just do all this criminality all over again. Well, the thing is, is that if you have a banking system where the various banks, uh, first of all, let's take a step back. Uh, the normal way for a money, for, for, for a society to work in terms of money and banking and saving and so forth and investing is that you work you save and you invest your savings. You know, that's the basic criteria for how, how any uh, social society or society should work. Now, the banks, they come in and they facilitate uh, the, this system so that you can actually borrow money from the future and spend it today. And that's called credit, okay? Mm. Now, as long as you are able to uh, have real value behind the credit and the credit doesn't grow 
completely out of control like it's done now, things are okay. There's nothing wrong with uh, issuing loans and things like that if it's backed by real you know, resources, like you say, or value. Mm. So the problem is when you have an, a system uh, that is fundamentally flawed in that the central banks uh issue uh, issue money or currency by expanding the money supply and then you have the banks the private banks leveraging the money that they hold at the uh, you know at the central bank and money they get in deposits from you and I mm. to lend your money basically out 10 or 20 or an unlimited amount of time then the value behind each unit uh, becomes less and less until it completely diminishes. Right. This is a central aspect of the pyramid scheme, right? Of course, yeah. Mm. And uh, so when people want to regulate that, I don't think they understand what they're talking about because uh, in in the end, uh, the fiat system gives the banks the opportunity to issue all this credit. So you have to go to the root cause of the problem, which is how can you uh, how can you stop the banks from issuing all that credit and dilute their balance sheet until there's no no real liquidity or solvency to uh, to stand a, a crisis, you know, if uh, if there's an economic crisis. And the only way you can do that is to have a self-regulating system in which the people that work, then they take their, then they spend what they need for their livelihood, and then they save the money in the bank. And the banks, they can leverage some of it, but not too much. And if they do, if one bank is too eager to issue credit and needs to get that kind of credit by loaning money from the other banks, the other banks will ultimately they will say, hey. You're out of control. You're spending too much money. You're you're issuing too much credit. You're lending out too money. Yeah. You're lending out money to projects that are not safe. And they will rein in, sort of rein in that bank and say, before you can have any more money from us, you have to collect money from the current loans you've made and pay us back so that you get back to equilibrium, uh, some sort of defined e- e- equilibrium. And so it's a self-regulating system. And for that, you don't need any laws because the system if, uh, is, like I said, it's, it regulates itself. Now, that's not to say that uh, you don't need banking regulations for, you know, fair practice and, you know, trade practices and stuff like that. Yes, you, you, you probably do. You can't have a totally, you know. Un- yeah, but I, w- I would call that protections. Yeah, you call that protection? Like, like we need antitrust laws. Yeah, but the, the part of the problem is, is that if you make too many regulations, you have one regulation with some good intent behind it, but there are unintended consequences that you only learn about later. And then you make a new regulation. And pretty soon you have uh, regulations that sort of offset each other and you get into a a whirlpool of regulatory measures, which is... And and who can maneuver? Those who have enough money for corporate lawyers. Right. And this is what the book Sabotage is talking about as well. Right, right. So, but they they have the wrong solution because their prescribed solution just brings more of the same and it makes the problem that they are so good at uh, defining even bigger. 
Mm. So you don't need more regulation. You need less, and you need a, a system not based on fiat credit system or fractional reserve lending. You need a system where the banks regulate themselves, and banks that are too expensive and too too much of a risk taker are reined in by the other banks saying, "Hey, stop there! Mm. You can't do this anymore." Yeah. No, that's brilliant by making a system where the incentive is to function instead of today where there's incentives to do criminality. Well, of course, you know, the politicians and the banks are say hate that because uh, a self-regulating system cannot be manipulated. Right, right. Yes. And the big corporations. Yeah, because like I said, the regulations end up stopping you and me from doing anything and helping the huge corporations becoming bigger. So, yeah, unintended consequences indeed. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah, this makes sense. You know, this is completely in line with what Richard Werner has analyzed yeah. based on research. In fact, he says, let the small community banks have as little regulations as possible. Uh, as long as they are working on a healthy system, a healthy structure. But in order to protect us from speculations and betting and all that stuff, there has to be protections, at least. Let's not call it regulations, but one protection would, for example, be a law that says it's forbidden to print fiat. Yeah. So, you see, we need some protections by the law. Don't you agree with that? Yeah, exactly how you do that is, uh, can be discussed, of course. But remember what happened to John F. Kennedy when he tried to go against the Federal Reserve Bank in order to make uh, yeah. his, own, uh, his own money system, uh, which was for the people. They killed him, didn't they? They did, but in JFK's case, there's a million reasons for why he would be killed. Well, I, think it's a, I think it's a better example to use Gaddafi. Yeah. Or or Chavez, because both of them threatened to... In fact, Gaddafi was so crazy in terms of idealistic and not realizing the consequences that he wanted... Uh, to, he initiated not just to not be in the dollar, but to create a competitor to the dollar, <laughs> petrodollar. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you're really stepping on certain toes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, um, Gaddafi, Gaddafi did something that he was not in a power, powerful enough position to do. Mm. Now, the Chinese and the Russians are doing it, but they're more powerful mm. and they're doing it together with the BRICS, you know, Brazil and these countries yeah. uh, in, um, in creating a sort of new central banking system, if you want to call it that, for themselves, because they're sick and tired of the Americans exploiting them, yeah. funding yeah. themselves through just printing money. Mm. So um, there is a, I think that it's a, a fair assumption that the dollar is going to crash mm. because of this. And of course, if the dollar crashes, it could get uh, nasty. So what would uh, be the consequences of the dollar crashing? Oh, well, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, well, inflation for one thing. So all, 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 the, all the assets in terms of numbers in computers, stocks, stuff like that would be washed away overnight. And who would be left yeah. with the economic power? Would, would the nation state survive such an ordeal? I think, there, I think there's a fair chance, at least, 
that it's being orchestrated. So if the dollar crashes, it's an orchestrated event, just like it was back in 1929. Ah, to reset, to reset the system. Yeah, and that the IMF and the and the World Bank is standing by with their special drawing rights, SDRs, mm. and a di- digital currency, for example, the Fed coin, as mm. has been mentioned, and that uh, they would step in and say. To the banking. We have no choice, right? We have to. Yeah, well, you know, if if it's partly or wholly private banking sector is partly or wholly controlled by the owners of the central banks, then the the central banking system could say that, well, the private banking sector is now is now collapsed, uh, and uh, uh, we're coming in to save the people, so we'll take over all banking. Mm. So all of a sudden you've transferred all the power for the digital money, if you like, over to the central banks, which is what they, which is what was their purpose back in 1910 and uh, 1913 when they. Yeah, yeah but I think they could, uh, I think it's possible today because the difference is that back then people were instinctively skeptical to the powers that be and the banks, even though they may not understand how it worked. The, the the default go-to position was, I don't believe you and I know you have your own interests. And so they have to convince me yeah. of not being guilty. Today, it's opposite. Today, the default, at least in Norway, uh, but uh, all over at the middle class, at least, the, the default attitude is I trust everything, the system and the powers that be. Says, and if someone else is challenging that, they are either wackos or uh, I don't know conspiracy theories, whatever motives they would, they, you know, crazy people or or people who are inter- or Russian agents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you know so, like exactly how exactly how a dollar crash would play out, or how how a collapse of the financial system plays out. It's difficult to say and. When I say that it might be that uh, there will be a takeover of the whole banking system by the central bank, I'm speculating. Of course, but of course. It's, it's, I think it's a fair speculation to make given the history of the fiat money system and what happened back on Jekyll Island in 1910. It's a fair speculation. Yes, and it's a fair speculation given that there is not awareness and required skepticism among the people towards their business people don't understand how stuff works they just trust they have a bank account in a bank and that's it and and it's not even there you know most people have enough with trying to get food in their belly and roof over their head yeah. it's not their place to even understand or, or criticize this so i think when the protections are gone when the people who are supposed to represent us and have time to analyze and understand these things are compromised, when we've had 30, 40 years with failing upwards and more and more criminals in the system, in power, then it's a given. They can get away with it now. But if you look at solutions, I'm I'm thinking, isn't it logical that if you disconnect, let's say the dollar, there was a huge crash. Couldn't that also be a silver lining in that if we disconnect money from the fictional finance system, the overlaying, the numbers in the computer, the stock market, all that stuff, and you tie money directly back to resources, couldn't that wipe out all this toxicity in the system and get a more healthy economic system where real money, real value is connected to money? If you are able to prevent 
a collapse in the financial system and if it's a dollar crash or crash of other currencies well if you're able to prevent the powers that be to use that situation to uh, uh, come and save the people by uh, instituting a new digital currency Mm. and disallowing all the cryptocurrencies Uh, if you can avoid that if you're able to let Bitcoin, if it's truly a decentralized unit and not something controlled by the elite, mm. and you have uh, Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrencies as well. Mm. So people could choose between cryptocurrencies, which is the people's money. Mm. If that's the end result of that, then yes, that would liberate uh, the, the the world of these uh, banksters. But, but if, all, but, yeah. yeah, but all crypto money... They are not tied to actual resources. They're just a, a money game in them, like a monopoly game, digital monopoly game, no? Yeah, which is what uh, why people like Peter Schiff and others uh, uh, always come back to the fact that we need to go back to a gold-backed system. Mm. Yeah. So there is a difference of opinion among the experts out there as to whether Bitcoin uh, has a rightful life or not. And uh, it remains to be seen whether it does. I don't have the answer to that one. Yeah, it is kind of a fiat. It's just that it's a fiat working for the people rather than the central bankers. Well, it's uh, supposedly a limited amount of bitcoins to be out there. That's why they try to compare it to a gold-backed system. But arguably, you you really can't say that gold uh, gold-backed system and bitcoin is the same. So the argument is that it's a limited amount of coins and therefore it's a closed system. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, right. as far as I'm concerned, uh, the best way to do this is, is to go back to gold-based ba- systems like we had before Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. Yeah. And uh, the thing is with the, you know, a gold-backed system prevents politicians from using money they don't have. Mm. And that that's the problem, uh, because politicians, if they have the chance to spend money that they they really don't have, they'll do it. And, you know, printing money would never occur if the politicians hadn't accepted the banks doing it in the first place, mm. which brings me back to another part of the solution, which is we need a lot less politicians and politics. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You mean in money, in, in economics? No, we, we just need to turn back the clock in terms of uh, the kind of power that uh, the politicians and the deep state has over the, mm. over the people and, and, uh, and the society. Yeah. We, need, we need to give power back to the people and we, we, we don't need all this political uh, maneuvering and decisions in our lives. We need to restrict politicians and political issues to a minimum mm, i agree but it's yeah the po- the political under uh, industrial complex is <laughs> running havoc too mm. uh, america is supposed to be a nation of laws but the problem is um, there's so many laws now that one law cancels out another and of course there's a lot of corrupt uh, caretakers of the law and so um yeah. Well, you know, the laws are written by very smart lawyers, and the very smart lawyers, who do they work for? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 You know, we see how regulations are abused very often. It means the big players can avoid it, 
the big gates of the world, the BFB sources of, of the world, they can avoid those things and then they are in bed with the state Mm-hmm. Because the state is run by politicians and bureaucrats, and they are not powerful enough anymore to. In, in fact, they're not uh, working for us anymore. They are paid by the owners. Uh, you know, the real power is the money. So, who owns the money? And so, um, oh, I lost my own thread. Uh, what, what was I beginning with saying? Um, well, we're talking about solutions and what needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So we have. All these interests are lining up uh, against the people. So I, I think to recharge the system, we n- need to kind of take money away from uh, the financial system and tie it somehow back to everyday resources, I'm thinking. I agree. Because the, the resources are there. I mean, people are doing stuff, whether you get paid for it or not. You're doing something useful in your life, taking care of your mother or your child or whatever. Whatever you're doing, either you're getting paid for it or not, Mm -hmm. it's a part of the resource system. And the resource system is naturally regulated by itself. The problem is when you put money into this and these money games, that's kind of what compromising everything. And it looks to me like the resources are almost detached today from what generates profit. Yeah, you just have to make sure that you distinguish money from credit. Uh, Right. The the system is run on credit. Right. And uh, and it's a a system that can only grow. It cannot decrease, which is why it's called a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme. Because the the credit, in order to pay off the credit, you need more credit. So it's right. it's 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 bound, it's bound to grow, and uh, it's it's bound to result in more taxes. People who talk about uh, the lessening the tax burden don't understand how the system works because it cannot happen. Because it this is uh, this is interesting because Marx, you mentioned him earlier in his first uh, work before he uh, proposed any solutions. It was just a criticism of of uh, the system, which he called, the book called Das Kapital. And there he says what you say now. He says, inherent in this system, and I'm not sure if it was fiat in his day or backed by gold, but at any rate, he said that it's doomed to collapse uh, on its own. Like it's an ever-expanding bubble, mm-hmm. like the neoliberalism, like consume, consume, consume. And... The only way to, he said, is there only two ways to stop it. One is to wait for it collapsing, you know, uh, on its own rot, uh, imploding, so to speak, or uh, by revolution. Yeah. I, I believe he already said revolution in the first book, but he didn't go into how. And that's another matter in itself. Even if you believe in revolution, making a successful revolution where we end up with the people's interest, that's, it's not a good track uh, record in history for that. Usually the revolution eats its children, right? <laughs> no, and the, the only way we can accomplish that if we're, if we're able to, you know, ed- educate the, the people about what's really going on. If right. we're not able to do that, the same powers that's running the system out will do it again. The only the only thing is that they'll be even more powerful after that happens. Yeah. So uh, yeah, but but Marx is right, and I think the corruption is so deep, 
and the debt is so high that it has to crash from the inside. Right, right. Because uh, the politicians aren't going to crash it because nobody wants to be on the watch when it does. Right. And, uh, of course, the money managers or the elite, they, they won't let it crash unless they decide that uh, it's in their best interest like they did back in 1927 mm. uh, and up to the crash in 1929. Yeah, and they would do that only if it, because they have interest of status quo, because today they are the one skimming the status quo. So the only way they would think, okay, let's accelerate the crash here is if they see that it's unavoidable and that they may have to pay the bill. Yeah. So that then it's better to implement a crash that they, where they can control the outcome, that they are on top of the outcome. See, that's that's basic detective uh, analysis, right? You agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, the old Baron von Rothschild once said that uh, when the when the streets of Paris is is running with blood, I invest. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if we have a collapse, that's what's going to happen. And another kinder word for that is that a collapse, a financial collapse, always. Uh, deals with the transfer of wealth from one party to another and of course it's never the middle class or the poor no. that is on the right end of the stick when that happens mm. Mm. Or, or we may have a situation where the transfer is from the rest of the normal people to those who already have that's the two parties that in the corona crash uh, who's been suffering? Normal, wealthy, middle class. Who's uh, prospered? Those who already had the huge assets, the multinational, co the oligarchs, basically. Well, you know, uh, what? I don't know if you've seen uh, these uh, international doctors who's now speaking out about this, but uh, it seems that the cure for this uh, so-called pandemic is uh, turning out to be a lot worse than the the virus itself, if yeah. or if the virus indeed exists, which I have my doubts about. Yeah, there's even that question. Uh, or, or if the virus is a bio lab, uh, bioweapon lab uh, product, which it may also be. But if you look to Sweden, they have uh, gone against everyone else and they've been criticized for that. Yeah. But now it seems that they have indicated because Sweden has not gotten, uh, and, and for those who doesn't know, Sweden had just a small lockdown, not an, not a forced lockdown of everyone, but they deliberately locked down the biggest meeting places and then they practiced social distancing, but no mandatory mask, no mandatory uh, stop your business or stop your shop to, and go to work. So they want to go for herd immunity. Yeah. Now there's a second wave. And we did a lockdown system and we are suffering from it. So the numbers are going down in Sweden. They're very, very high, of course, but they're going down in terms of more uh, victims. And in countries like ours, they're going up again. So it might actually end up that it's aligned at the end of the day that Sweden and Norway is ending up identical in terms of casualties, mm -hmm. but in terms of the cure, Sweden won't have lost as much because we have lost lots of businesses have gone down. Not not as bad as in America because the state has intervened and guaranteed. Yeah. But in America, it's be just been a, what we call the Wild West, right? Um, 
Well, uh, you know, this uh, this is assuming that there is a virus, and this is also assuming that the PCR tests uh, uh, works uh, the way they're supposed to. They don't. That's proven. They and, don't. Uh, and the point is, is that they don't. I mean, yeah, they yeah. have like a ninety percent fallacy. Yeah. Uh, so the real uh, the real conclusion to be drawn from the pandemic is that if you're eighty years old and you have other sicknesses, you're in danger. Otherwise, you're you're pretty okay. Mm. So you said that the fire system, I think you said the longest it's been running is 40 years before it collapsed. Well, the, the, average, uh, the average fiat money system, and there have been hundreds, perhaps uh, more than a thousand in the history of the world. Okay. They've, all, they've all, every single one of them has collapsed. And the average uh, number of years, I think I, I saw that from uh, Mike Maloney's The Hidden Secrets of Money, which you can find on YouTube, mm-hmm. is uh, thirty between 35 and 40 years. So we are overdue for a financial yeah. collapse. And since since the numbers back in two, 2007 was uh, total world debt of $105 trillion, and now it's $285 trillion, there is no way other way than a collapse. It's impossible to stop it. Yeah. yeah. So we should be nervous when they start admitting that they're preparing for it because that's when it's unavoidable. But my question is, do we have a similar statistics for a value-backed system, like a gold-backed system? Has that turned out not – I mean, has that collapsed or has that just been transformed into a fire system and never collapsed? Well, you can uh, – in the old days, uh, people tried to trick, uh, you know – coins made from uh, precious metals by uh, gold coins where they put lead instead of gold and stuff like that mm. so they try to water out the uh, the so-called value mm. so so that's happened of course but uh, it's it's not that easy to 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 do the same thing with a with a minted system than you can do with paper money of course or we don't really have paper money either, much of it. No. Anyway, we have it on a computer. It's yeah. it's just something that the banks type into a computer and say, okay, you got five million for a new house. Mm. So, no. But it does have a better track record in history. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, also if you look at uh, how uh, how gold has fared compared to fiat money and the uh, and the stock market and such, it's. Uh, it's always much safer and has been um, much more, uh, um, much better. If you, I hate to use the word investment when you buy gold, but it is a better investment than uh, mm. over over time, over the over many hundred years, and over the last ten years as well. Mm. Now, I'm not an ism guy. I'm not like fully behind one ism because I don't think there's one system that takes everything into account and is like divinely uh, truthful and has the answer to everything. So I think people who are identified with isms are not very deep thinkers, but you can, of course, make value judgment and say, I think one ism is better than another. Okay, fair. Now, my point is there is no... Oh, I've, sorry, I started to talk about isms. So what was my point? Um, that oh, I was going somewhere. Okay, let's just move on and I, it will come back to me and I will okay. ask it again. It had to do with gold, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, now I remember. There's something <laughs> called anarcho-capitalism. 
Like I said, I'm not 100% on board with everything, but one interesting thing, I see value in all isms, that's the point. And one interesting thing with anarcho-capitalism, and I'm asking you as a financial analytic man, they say that there's no reason to tie up economy to any prioritized currency. In other words, whatever people decide should be valuta is accepted valuta. So uh, you probably know that here in Norway we have something called bittering, exchange rings, mm-hmm. and, and similar systems which are working parallel with the economy where you bypass money. Like I do a service for you, you do a service for me. Uh, I trade an item to you, you trade back an item or a service to me. And there's also been experiments in the world, uh, even in America, with alternative currencies and we've had parallel currencies for a while you mentioned jfk i believe he implemented a jfk dollar mm-hmm. where the bank uh, were controlled by the uh, the printing press was controlled by the state so what do you think about such solutions because in a chaos if we if we disregard the dangers of you know criminality and bloodbath when the whole system collapsed if you disregard that and just look at the economics then you could say that we could rewind very quickly by just implementing people's valuta people's currency you see what i'm yeah. asking you do you think that could work well all all kinds of stuff has been used for money going back you know they, it's basically a barter system hmm. and uh, yeah you're right but uh, it in in a in a system based on division of labor, where somebody who's good at producing shoes and another one is good at producing milk, um, you it's easier to not use the barter system, but instead use some kind of uh, some kind of monetary system uh, where you can pay for the things that you buy in the modern society. So. I think the best way to do it is to come back to a gold-based system, and I think that's where we're headed. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, in a transition period when there's economic chaos because of a crash, I I think direct barter systems would naturally rise, and people would just bypass the economics. They would have to. How else are we supposed to survive, right? Well, it depends on what type of collapse you have. You have to remember that the Great Depression lasted from 1929 all the way to after the Second World War, so 16 years. Hmm. And, you know, a collapse doesn't mean that everything goes from 100 to zero overnight. Hmm. A collapse can take time. I mean, uh, the stock market uh, back in 1929, it took a long time to fall uh, 85 90 percent or however much you know oh, okay yeah so it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole system collapses overnight mm. now you might you might find that the banks and the financial system as such with the banks all of a sudden uh, collapse they don't have the money to they don't have the liquidity to stay afloat but surely someone's going to come in and pick up the pieces and uh in a very difficult transition period, something will something will be done in order to transact and pay for transactions among the people. And I think that the, if the current banking system has its way, that will be done more than likely by the IMF and the World Bank through using the special drawing rights 
and uh, you know a completely di- digital currency mm. if they can do it the way they want to do it mm. so so they can even argue look money doesn't work let's go over to this system oh yeah and uh, because of because of uh, the uh, the apathy and the lack of understanding from the people which of course is the result of uh, uh, years of uh, being told uh, the wrong story about how the system works will mm. uh, make it an easy path for them to go. Mm. You know, all they have to say about crypto is that it's being used for laundering money and 95% of the people will agree and say, uh, damn, 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 be cryptos. Mm. Let's get the digital currency, even though it, uh, it turns into a complete 24-7 surveillance uh, society. Mm. You know, people are gullible. You have to, you know. Yeah, and uh, I believe it was the Joseph Goebbels, I think, who said that you can't tell them a small lie because people themselves tell small lies and will be natural skeptical. You have to tell a huge lie that they can't conceive of would be yeah. untruthful because they themselves will never do it. So you, you need a special type of psychopath mm-hmm. to ascend to the top of uh, our current system. Uh, on all areas, I mean, mm. which is kind of what we have today, I think. Yeah, well, Goebbels would probably blush if he saw how this system <laughs> works today. <laughs> yes, amen to that. Yeah. Okay, we're winding down towards the end here. Uh, we'll be going for three hours, I think. That's good. Yeah. And uh, finally, is there anything we have left out of this debate that you want to add that people should know about? Uh, no, uh, not that much. I would just encourage people who listen to this to go out and search for real stories and and uh, and the real documentation as to what's been going on and what is going on from alternative news sources than we have today. Right. Because uh, the news is owned by the six biggest uh, news media uh, corporations in the world. And what we see on the news today in Norway has already been uh, chewed out and spitted out from these organizations, and you cannot trust it. No. So what you need to do is don't listen to you, Al, don't listen to Hans, but go out and search for the truth and try to find out on your own what's really going on. Right. I agree. I, I, I've been saying that myself. And don't be scared of what you might find because it'll it'll save humanity if enough people do that. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, I go further because I know most people are either too lazy to do the uh, or they're too uneducated even because today people are not trained anymore to you know source criticism and verification. Or they are, which in the majority of cases, bogged down and distracted. They are exhausted. They are, you know, it's, I come home after a long, hard day at work. I'd rather just see a movie and tune out. So you have all that going. Mm-hmm. But so in that reality, I say, listen to me and Hans mm-hmm. rather than to the mainstream. Because, you, you know, the difference is we have no vested interest. We are not paid by anyone to spin your thoughts we are not propagandists we are doing this out of our own concerned citizen attitude we are idealists we're doing this despite of not because of and and so people funded ventures especially in media is a much better uh, you know source of neutral unbiased information mm-hmm. than 
the propaganda and, and it's not just podcasts and and platforms like mine it's also you you write for an independent something as rare as an independent uh, news outlet in Norway albeit it's old school in format mm-hmm. but just the fact that they let your voice i mean all the kudos to trolls uh, your editor for even after you got charged in this kangaroo court they still keep you on because there was uh, when i researched you i saw that there was this harassment campaign against because they hate new T- new time and trolls because he's writing about things they don't want to be written about like 911 yeah so so they try to use you against new time so oh, look they have a criminal journalist on board mm. or contributor on board yeah. or, or, and try to like uh, shame him ridicule him pressure him to kick you off but he didn't <laughs> no 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 that's true and uh, all i have to give truthfully the editor of new times uh, a lot of credit for uh, for uh, the way he handled that and uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, people from the financial uh, committee at uh, in parliament tried to stop the article that I wrote concerning the uh, the, the the phony bank guarantee system, oh wow! Uh, they, uh, this Hans Christian Syversen from the religious part in Norway, he tried to stop that article, <laughs> and uh, Trulsli said that uh, no. We're not going to do that. We're going to let Hans Olav write that article. And I suggest that you answer his questions about the fractional reserve lending system and issues that he has in that regard. So Truls has been a very staunch supporter of uh, bringing, uh, you know, this information out to the public. And he ne- he should get a lot of credit for it. And, uh, and uh, of course, here we have a paper that's crowdfunded, basically. It's the subscribers who pay for it. Yeah. And so uh, I have a small confession to make, though. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm an, I am in the process of publishing my second book. It will be published uh, within the next five to six weeks. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's do it now. So you, you said second book. Let's start with your first book. Yeah, my first book. Uh, you can read the the English uh, translated version of that by going to Amazon and Jeff Bezos, <laughs> and you can order the book. It's called uh, The Grand Self-Deception. Uh, in Norwegian, it's called The Store Selbedrag. Uh, you can get it from Kolofon, mm. and it's about uh, the social welfare system, and it's about uh, liberalism and people's rights and uh, a little bit of philosophy and economics mm. all mixed into one. Mm. Uh, that book you can get from uh, Kolofon. You can get it on Amazon in the the English version. And uh, the second book I'm writing now is called uh, in Norwegian Farvel Menske, which translates into Farewell Human. And uh, it's uh, pretty dystopian title. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think it's a fitting title for what yeah. the, the book talks about. It's an interesting book because I go behind the scenes and talk about uh, how the money people have uh, rigged society for hundreds of years. I'm starting with the, the Battle of uh, Waterloo uh, mm. between Napoleon and Wellington, mm. and it takes us up to the present time. And uh, besides that, I'm also talking about uh, the forces that uh, are funding Silicon Valley mm. and uh, how how the uh, transformation to the Hunger Games society is well on its way. 
and how nanotechnology, um, 5G and perhaps also 6G and uh, artificial intelligence uh, will soon uh, make the biological human distinct. So so also transhumanism is a part of... Yeah, transhumanism yeah. is the right word. Mm. Yeah. So it will be... A, Unfortunately, it'll be about a five to six hundred page book, but uh, you know what? Uh, when is it out? Uh, I think it'll be out uh, in in between three to five weeks. It'll be out oh. in 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 Norwegian language. Yeah. That recent, uh, okay? Because I was thinking we should maybe have a show about transhumanism, about that book. Like a, a new interview where we talk about the contents of your book, but uh, I, I guess it. On otherwise, it's also very in flux with what we talked about today, right? Lots of that is in the book too, right? It's in, it's covered in detail, yes. Mm. Mm. Because of the transhumanism angle, we didn't touch that today, but that's very interesting in the AI and all that stuff, nanotechnology. Yeah, you know, one of the well, this, big uh, yeah. bad uh, boogeyman here is uh, DARPA. <laughs> in America. <laughs> you agree with that? Yes, I agree completely. Uh, uh, and this is where you play right into the right into Huxley's Brave New World and uh, George Orwell's warning uh, to to uh, on his deathbed to the people. You know, this is this is exactly what's going on and uh, we need to make people aware and we need to people to empower themselves in order to stop it. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, okay, so your website and your YouTube channel. Yeah, let's hear it. What, what, uh, my my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. How do they find it? Uh, well, you just search my name on YouTube, Hans Erik Olav, and you find the YouTube channel. Mm. Do you also have a website? Uh, no, I have a website uh, covering the whole Tula case, but uh, I don't think that would be interesting except to, you know, special interest groups. Well, I think maybe Norwegians would. Well, it's uh, Tula Drilling at WordPress.com. Mm, okay. I believe it is. Uh, yeah, I believe that's it. Tula Drilling. Mm. I've uh, posted the whole case and I've uh, where documentation and evidence is uh, is needed. I've, uh, I've posted that directly in the text so you can click on the evidence. Mm. And, uh, of course, if you go to New Time, you will find a survey of the articles you've written there. Have you written articles for other outlets too? Yes, I've uh, I've written uh, four or five articles, uh, no, five or six articles in the last year for Reset, Reset. Right, right. That's another of this new media we also have in Norway. I mentioned it to trolls. So you have Reset and you have uh, Stegon as to people-driven uh, system-critical new medias. So uh, it's good to know that you're part of that too. I guess I guess to them, you were trustworthy when they, when you were charged. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's like a quality uh, hallmark. <laughs> well, you know, uh, one good thing about having been charged uh, and being uh, having this uh, travesty of justice done against you mm. Is that you? You can sort of the ironic thing you can say is that I must have done something right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you did something right coming on uh, our show today, helping <laughs> enlighten us about what's going on in terms of economics. It's so so complex, and there's so many 
aspects and layers that we can never exhaust that subject. Oh. Although we touched much of this with others too, it just helps to, to clarify. And now people hear it from a Norwegian also. I think that's has some value too, not just Americans. Mm. So thank you a lot for coming on uh, today and contributing. Well, thank you for uh, letting me come on. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes. Nej, men okej. Okay. Tusen tack för att ha lånt oss lördagskvällen. Och beklagat till kon, men dere får kose dere för det lille sidan. <laughs> ja, det ska vi göra. Tack för det. Ja, vi håller kontakten på mig. Det gör vi. Ha det fint. Hej, hej. And there you have it. Scratching the surface of the economic system that everyone agrees about as far as the criticism goes but where solutions may differ and and we've examined one approach today and others in former shows and we will continue to investigate uh, the phenomenon of our world economy because of the dire times it's a pressing matter that nobody can escape and uh, something we all have to relate to. So, paradigm expansion also on this area. Before leaving you, let me remind you, we are now on all podcast platforms, okay? So whichever you usually use, look us up and please subscribe to us there. The more subscribers we have, the better we are faring. What you may not know, is that we are also in library, or ODC as it's called, which is their attempt to become the new tube. And you know what? I think it's working. Because recently the SEC has gone after ODC and they are suing them, obviously trying to crush them. Uh, and the angle is going after their Bitcoin system that they give as kickback to creators. So in one big swoop, they're going to crush YouTube's biggest and most serious competitors because the others have no chance, especially not stuff like BitChute. But these have, and that's why they have to be taken down. And of course, if they were just a commercial actor, but they are also into cryptos, decentralized, peer-to-peer, non-surveillance and freedom of speech. And many YouTubers have emigrated. Why? Not just because of of, uh, the obvious reasons you just heard, but also because through the library function, they transfer everything on a channel over to themselves and host it there for everyone who signs up. So obviously it's making the powers that be nervous and now they're trying to crush cryptos and the YouTube in USA. So I suggest you look it up and support them however you can. Tell all everyone you're fans of, all the other channels, to get their ass over to library or to ODC and also sign the petition to stop this madness. Because one thing is that they are ruining the few outlets independent media already had by corrupting them like YouTube and then censoring and going after channels on these platforms. But now they're also ruining and they're even crushing the few potential platforms we could use as a refugee camp. So the battle rages on and if you, the people, are being indifferent and not engaged and not getting your hand dirty and not participating, then then we've lost. So go to Odyssey, subscribe to us there because 
one day we'll be gone from YouTube. They'll delete us and most of you won't even notice, <laughs> unfortunately. Maybe you will think, hmm, Forum Borealis, haven't heard from them in a long time. Well, you will know why. So, but if you if you sub to us at the other places, you'll stay in the loop. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And to my team. And to my guest today. I've been your host, Al. Sincerely signing off. Be seeing you. number one.